This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning. I'm Ronnie Garcia. We've never had the pleasure of meeting, and today we start a new sermon series on the book of Psalms, so I'm excited. And we're going to start right where you would expect, right at the beginning, with Psalm 1. And actually what I'm going to do is Psalm 1 today, and then Psalm 2 next week, because in, some, in, in a very real way, they're like the gateway to the Psalms. See, the Psalms stand in the very center of our Bible as a guide to the happy life. And so Psalms are like poems or songs. They're the hymn book of the Old Testament. And these poems are meant to persuade our emotions and our mind to live lives that produce happiness. In fact, the very first word, as we're going to see in the Psalms, is the word blessed. And this could be translated, oh, how happy, right? And so this word sets the stage. And as we're going to see, there are these two paths. One path leads to happiness or blessedness, and the other leads to misery. Now, this word blessed or happy is actually a wildly misunderstood word. Whenever the Bible uses the word blessed, what it means is total fulfillment or complete and perfect well-being. This word actually has very little to do with financial success, like getting money and you're like, hey, what a blessing, nothing like that. Now, there are these two paths, these two destinies, And these two kinds of people that are often spoken about, not just in Psalm 1, but throughout the Psalms. And the two groups are righteous people and wicked people. Now, before we go any further and before we even get into our text, let me explain these two different categories of people because it's it's very easy to misunderstand. These two words are categories, or more specifically, they're statuses. The righteous are called righteous not because of their moral perfection, but rather because of the inclination of their hearts. That is to say, the righteous define success in terms of right relationship with God. And as a result, they believe the promises of grace and they give themselves over to those ideals. Now, it's important to note that the wicked are not necessarily worse behaved. In fact, there are plenty of examples of nice people who are in the the wicked category. However, their wrong lies in the fact that they offer a possibility of happiness that is defined separate from right relationship with God. They follow their own path. They follow their own advice, and they are independent from God. So it's important that that we begin with that kind of clarification, uh, really kind of for two reasons. First, the Psalms are ancient texts that are written a long time ago to a culture that's very different than ours. And they use words differently than how we use words as modern people. And we'll actually never understand the Psalms until we kind of get our brains around the intentions of the original authors, these artists. Now, the second reason is that The Psalms never invite those who are in the righteous category to see themselves as superior to those in the wicked category. You know why? Because they are not superior. 
A person in the wicked category is not a person who has murdered or, like, just as an example, King David was in the righteous category, even though he indeed had murdered and even committed adultery. So it's really just a way of describing one's independence from God. Now, how did we get those definitions of righteous and wicked anyway? If you'll remember, at the very beginning of time in Genesis, God says to Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit. Now, those words were God's reveal, revealed will for Adam and Eve. That, was like, that sentence was like their Bible, right? Now, uh, what did they do? Of course, they lived independent from God's words, and they ate the stinking fruit. Now, as you know, eating a piece of fruit is not traditionally considered a sin. It's not like murder is equal to eating a pineapple, right? So what's the problem? Why was eating a fruit considered such a wicked thing? The problem was is that Adam and Eve lived independently from God's revealed words. Even though God created them and designed Adam and Eve, they still believed that they knew how to be happy better than God did, their maker. See, God is infinitely concerned with our happiness, and our happiness is infinitely connected to living dependently upon God's words. Thus, we have these two categories, the righteous and the wicked. The righteous defines success in a certain way, and the wicked define success in another. But there's only one way that brings true happiness. Now, it doesn't take much imagination to see why this theme or Psalm 1 would be of interest um, uh, to modern people, right? These, even this ancient, this ancient song. Because who in the world does not want to be happy? Everyone wants to be happy. And yet when we look around, right, we see more depression, broken families, anxiety, substance abuse, more than ever before. Listen, no one just wakes up one morning and says, hey, I'm so stinking happy, I just want to get stoned today, right? That's not how it happens. See, here's the deal. Listen, we all want to be happy. But for most of us, happiness has actually been quite elusive because life is hard and the seasons change. So this is actually a very relevant question for all of us. So our study of Psalm 1 uh, is we're going to try to discover who it is that is truly happy. And we're going to do so by asking Psalm 1 three questions. We're going to ask, what are the two sources, verses 1 and 2? What are the two effects, verses 3 and 4? And then what are the two outcomes, verses 5 and 6? So sources, effects, and outcomes. Now, we're going to give ourselves to the reading of God's word right now, and I would ask, please use your bulletin or open your Bible and keep your eyes on the Bible for the duration of this sermon, because I really want you to see us working through this text together. You'll enjoy this sermon much more if you do that. All right. If you will reverently give attention to Psalm 1. Hear now the word of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, 
nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The grass withers, the flower fades, trees fade, but the word of God abides forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Amen. All right, let's begin with the two sources. The psalm begins by giving us a description of a blessed person by contrasting two different sources. And of course, the psalmist does this in classic Hebrew poetic fashion. So let's examine the negative example first. You'll notice there in verse 1, each line escalates the severity of the line before. So look at the refrain. It moves from the wicked to the sinner's to the mockers. And then, correspondingly, the verbs change from walking to standing to sitting. You see that? So by the end of verse 1, not only is a man just simply walking by some, like, bad guys, but he's, like, hanging out with the mockers. Like, he's hanging out with them, enjoying a good time, apparently. Now, what is this signifying? This is just a poetical device to demonstrate that a person's source of life comes from the counsel or the world view or that vision of the world of people who have no regard for God. Now, this is shocking, of course, because the Jews believed that God created man, and because God was the creator, only he could be consulted on how to be happy. It's like, um, it'd be like a person who has a Toyota, right? The car breaks down, and then he takes it to, like, 10 more washing machines or something. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, God's not going to know what to do with it. So, listen, the poetic escalation is meant to highlight a stark contrast, then, with the guy who's going to counsel in the right place in verse 2. So, instead of delighting in the advice of mockers, the man delights On the law of the Lord. His source of happiness for life is God's word. Now, from here on out, one's connection and delight in the Torah, which is just a Hebrew word for the law, will actually shape the course of their life and happiness. So, one's happiness is tied to their relationship to God's law, to his revealed will, right? His words. Now, this isn't seen just in the Psalms or Psalm 1. This is everywhere in the Bible. Just for example, at the very beginning of Joshua, he says it like this. Joshua says, hey, don't let this book of the law uh, depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. Be careful to do everything that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and you'll have success, right? And notice that a prosperous and happy life is tied to their relationship with God's Torah, God's law, God's word. Now, the psalmist, right, he's not neutral. He has a view of the world that's actually important for us to adopt. For the psalmist, he sees all humans um, like trees, as an example. It's no surprise, actually, that the tree is the principal metaphor in the following sections in three and four. But let's, let's talk about trees for just a second. Trees cannot exist by themselves. See, trees are vitally connected to their soil and to their water source. If the water source and the soil are clean and rich with nutrition, then the tree will prosper. But if the tree is planted in bad soil, or worse, it's poisoned soil, then the tree will wilt and it will die. Because it is impossible for a tree to grow healthy and produce fruit when its source is contaminated, right? Because that'd be impossible. 
where the tree is rooted will affect the life of that tree, for better or for worse, you see. So the psalmist is sort of artistically inviting us to evaluate what source our roots are growing into, right? What do we turn to to give us life, to make us happy, right? What is it? Do you go to your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Do you put roots into them and beg them to give you life and happiness? Do we plug our roots, students, into our academic performance? Do we plug our roots into school to look for approval and happiness? Parents, have you plugged your roots into your children's accomplishments, hoping, hoping that it's going to validate you as a good parent? Right? What is the most important thing in your life? Where have you grown your roots into with the hope that they will produce happiness? If your roots are plugged into and grown into God, then it will produce a harvest of happiness. If you put your roots into anything else, however noble it may be, you, it will fail you and it will poison you. We were designed to get our blessedness and our happiness only from God. And that is the implicit assumption of verse 2. So the psalm, the psalm exhorts us to, to get plugged into the law of God. And not only is it man's source, but there seems to be this, right, look there in verse 2, it seems to be like this love affair with God's law. He, he meditates on it day and night like a lovesick lover, right? Now, when you hear that word law, you know, like modern people, we don't quite get it. We, we normally have like this negative connotation of law, like a list of things that we need to like not do so that we don't get in trouble or something like that. Uh, that is actually not how the Hebrews thought of the law. The, the, the law is more like this, um, this system or this ultimate reality of how God created the world. It is a tapestry of true reality and what he has made it to do. And so to them, then the law and knowing the law was so attractive because it was a blueprint that ensured that everything in the universe worked the way that God intended. They believed that only God could tell us how we should live since he was the architect and the designer of mankind. Just like a Manual comes with a new computer, right? The manual tells the owner how the computer works properly. If you choose to disregard the manual, then there's going to be consequences because you're going to make the computer operate in a way that it wasn't designed for. See, the law then is like um, a manual for life. The manual is not a threat. It's a help, right? So that our life functions exactly the way the maker intended and with those two verses, verses 1 and 2, the stage is set. So let's continue to our second question. What are the two effects? In verse 3 and 4, the psalmist uses a metaphor of a tree to demonstrate the value of having your roots plugged into the right source, God's word. So in verses 3, notice that the tree flourishes because it has access to water. Look, look there. It has access to water in all seasons, right? While in verse 4, we see an image of a tree that's what? It's dried up and it's reduced to chaff. 
Now, I don't know if you, we don't use that word often, but chaff is like, um, it's like the husk of a tree, like the outer portion of the tree that's kind of dead and falls off. It's like the litter of the forest. It can be blown around, has no roots in anything. It's rootless, right? So the implication is clear. Depending on your source, you will grow strong or weak. Now, that's not too difficult for us to understand, right? When I was... Um, when I was young, my mother would say to me, Ronnie, you are what you eat. I always thought that was a strange saying because I was like, how in the world can I be beans and rice and tortillas, right? Uh, but then, you know, I realized what she meant, of course. What she suggest- suggesting? She is suggesting that our bodies and our minds will grow according to the nourishment that is provided to them. Like, I mean, I could eat donuts every day of my life, but it would have massive consequences. I would grow weak, of course. Now, this is true, of course, in other realms, too, not just eating. For instance, uh, when I was in college, I had a professor who I thought was, like, really, like, the most interesting person around. And the reason why is because, like, every time I spoke to him, he had, like, so many thoughtful responses. He would usually cite some classic author like Aristotle or Dante, just to add like intrigue, right, to the conversation. It was like after talking to him, I realized that I am just not that deep of a person. Like, why, like my professor's like citing Socrates, and there I was like citing Britney Spears or something. I don't know, right? I was a pretty shallow person with very little ability to think deeply about important philosophical matters, right? Because what? I was spending too much time plugged into TV or video games or whatever, and too little time plugged into thoughtful essays. In other words, listen, I was just, I was feeding my mind with superficial stuff. See, being superficial was the effect of my sources, what I was plugged into. Now, here's my point. While verse 2 invites us to meditate on the law of God, Verses 3 and 4 show us why. It shows the effects. So feeding upon God's word and meditating on it helps us to all be people of substance. We will actually convert from being weak trees into being trees that are quite fruitful. But here's, but there's actually one more thing that's important to notice in this metaphor. Look there in verse 3, and you're going to notice that the, that the tree is actually planted by, what, streams of water. Now, just think about this with me for a moment. If a tree, uh, or a tree planted in the middle of a field is completely dependent on rain, and, and it will flourish or dry up depending on the season, depending on the climate, right? But see, that's not the case with a tree planted by streams of water, Because that tree has direct access to the source. So whether there's a lot of rain or no rain at all, that tree remains the same in and out of season. Steadiness characterizes the life of that tree. Why? Because the source of life is never interrupted. It's not dependent upon circumstances to flourish. People who are truly happy are happy irrespective of their circumstances. Now listen, that doesn't mean that there can't be sad occasions in our life, but what it does mean is that that season will not crush you. 
the word of God is firm and unchanging, and it's always offering love and life. Elizabeth Elliot, who is uh, quite acquainted with suffering and sadness, she once said, she says, joy is not the absence of trouble, but the presence of God. The effect of allowing God's word to define success and give you life is that it will never change. It will never let you down, you see. If you demand that anything else be your source of life and happiness, it's just a matter of time before it disappoints you and it lets you down. If you plug into your spouse for happiness, he or she will let you down. If you plug into your health, your health will fail. If you plug into your physique, into your physical beauty, your beauty will fade. See, nothing in this world is as unchanging and certain and dignifying as the word of God. God's law breathes life and dignity into our lives. And it's the only thing that remains the same in and out of season, even when everything around us is changing. Let me just add one more implication to this. This is kind of like a freebie. Um, not only will your source fail you, but you will fail your source. And, and let me just explain. If you plug in and grow your roots into your business success to give you life, then what happens when you fail, right? I mean, if that's your life source and you fail, if you lose your prestigious job, for example, then your source cannot offer you forgiveness and comfort, right? Any source other than God's word is actually quite harshly indifferent to your success or failure. The world is harshly indifferent to your personal success and failure. It could care less. Not so with God's word. It is infinitely concerned with your well-being and infinitely concerned with your heart. See, God's word offers a promise of forgiveness and a promise of consolation. Let's continue to our very final point. The final two verses show um, where the two paths lead. So one path leads to being known by God, verse 6. And that word, just to know or to watch over, connotes more than just like intellectual, cognitive knowledge. It's deeper. And then, of course, the other path leads to its logical destination. It follows the desire of the pilgrim who is walking that path. If the pilgrim insists that he wants independence from God, then that is exactly what he will be granted in the end. Complete and perfect independence from God. And that's meant to be horrifying. But the psalmist is clear. There are only two paths. There is no third. Now, when the text says that the way of the wicked will perish, it's suggesting that the branches of the tree will produce according to the source that has been feeding it, right? right? Verse 6. Remember, the metaphor is a tree. It's not a tube, right? Tubes suck up water from the bottom and blows out water from the top. But a tree sucks up water from below, but then it produces fruit from above. And the idea is that the only fruit for the 
wicked tree, the only fruit will be grief and loss. That's the harvest. Now, I want to pause right there and just acknowledge the tension in this text. Because there's this clear warning of judgment. The psalmist warns that your choices matter, that your choices are significant. Now, depending on where you live in the world, the notion of God's righteous judgment can either bother you or bring you comfort. Like, so if you were to live in a place where your family has been murdered by warlords deep in the Amazons or something like that, then you want God's justice, right? And so this portion of scripture doesn't bother you at all, right? It brings you comfort, in fact, because you want justice. You, you, you like this idea of two paths. Now, if you, dare I say it, live in the United States or in Puerto Rico, where your biggest social concern is whether or not you have internet today or not, right? Then you might be prone to thinking that you are too significant, or excuse me, too sophisticated and enlightened and modern to believe in a doctrine that promotes God's judgment. You might, you might think uh, that that's a primitive doctrine, because here in the West, right, we like to think that we're free thinkers and that our choices are separate from eternal consequences. Now, I don't, in this moment, have time to make a, a coherent philosophical argument that answers the question if God can be intrinsically loving without this idea of judgment. And if you have questions like that, um, please come talk to me, reach out to me. I would love to explore this topic with you. But for today, I just want to make one application, and it's this. If you want the Bible to speak to you and to shape your life, you have to accept it first. And you have to accept all of it, not just parts of it. Because until you accept the Bible, it will never be more than just a textbook to be studied, right? I mean, you'll read it, but you won't hear it. The Bible won't turn into God's words to you and for you. And your heart will remain deaf to its message and you won't feel the heat of God's words that are intended to melt your heart. There, um, there are parts of the Bible that are extremely difficult. Uh, even for people who have who've been Christians for a long time and have advanced seminary degrees in the Bible. But here, I want you to hear this. If you don't accept the entire Bible then what you're doing is you're essentially creating an alternative religion with your personal editing, you see. You're using parts of the Bible to create almost your own unique religion with maybe using similar words, but its own version. And then what happens is that God becomes nothing more than just this deaf deity that you have created from your own imagination and opinions and cultural moment. But when you accept the entire Bible, it forces you to wrestle with hard stuff. More importantly, it forces you to wrestle with God, right? And when you're wrestling with God himself, it's in those moments that you can know for sure that you have a relationship with him. 
Listen, any real relationship requires wrestling. Amanda and I, we've been married 18 years. We wrestle through issues all the time. Why? Because our relationship is real. In fact, if Amanda and I never had any disagreements or any fights, you would have the right to question if there was any authenticity to our relationship. See, the wrestling means it is real. And I I want that to comfort you as you personally, right, are wrestling with all these things. The wrestling means that it's real as you engage with the Lord. All right, let me just quickly conclude. God wants you to be happy. God cares about your happiness. And Psalm 1 stands as the gateway to the rest of the Psalms, teaching us that God's word, right, his law, this tapestry of reality are the keys that unlock true happiness. And the tighter that we cling to God's word, the deeper our joy will be. Now, I think I can anticipate this. Some of you might be thinking, uh, Ronnie, is that it? Really? Good behavior brings good fortune? Like, follow God's law and everything will just be fine because that sounds boring and uninspiring. And I would just say, you are right. That's not what the psalm is saying. What the psalm is doing through poetry, through beauty, through song, it's creating inertia and momentum that moves us towards Jesus, the fulfillment himself. And let me just explain. Years later, Jesus would be teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and he would say in Matthew 5, he'd say, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And do you see what he's doing? Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. So it's as if we are clinging to Jesus himself when we are clinging to the law of God. See, the blessed life, the happy life, is the life that delights in Jesus, right? Who is the fulfillment of the law. So we then are counted among the righteous, not, not because we're naturally obedient people, because we're not, but rather because we're, we're clinging tightly to the one who perfectly is righteous on our behalf. And we're just holding on, saying, Jesus, don't ever let us go. And then you're counted among the righteous. That's how Psalm 1 is meant to enchant your heart so that you would sing that song. That is not just a psalm of advice. That's a song, a psalm, a song of news. And it's good news. Will you give your heart to it? Amen.